And so let us hear then God's word from Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, we have looked now at verses 1 to 10, which uh, basically are um, some practical advice on how Paul says we should live as believers. He's exhorted the various ages and genders, along with slaves, to live lives of godliness. And we must do so to honor God, and simply because God saved us to be holy. And here are some ways that we can do so. Uh, And he's also said that we must do so because how we live is a witness to those around us. So not just our words, but our behaviors. Now, I spent a little extra time on the rather sensitive topic of slavery and racism that has um, kind of taken over our culture here, especially in the last number of years. Um, and so we talked about the ideas of submission as well as emancipation. We talked about the, the evils of slavery and so on, but also the value and necessity of working hard. Well, Paul shifts now from this practical advice to the reason why, the foundation. Um, Paul more typically starts with the theological foundation and moves to the practical living aspect, but here he switches it around. And so we begin then in verse 11 with four. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And so he's clearly linking these two sections together. Notice also in verse 10, where he says, God our Savior in all things. And now here in this verse, he says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So notice some of the same language. So clearly he's linking the the two parts together. All right, now, our English translations, uh, for the most part, have paraphrased verse 11. Um, And that's because... um, It's a little unclear how to exactly translate this. Uh, Literally, it reads, The grace of God has appeared. Salvation to all men. And so most of our translations are going to insert a word in there. So again, the grace of God has appeared. Salvation to all men. So should we insert this word to bring, as the New King James has done? The grace of God has brought salvation. Or should we put an is in there? The grace of God has appeared, or we could put it this way, the grace of God is salvation to all men. So there's some debate on how to handle all this, and your translations have done uh, various things. Uh, But notice it does not say that the grace of God has been given, or that the grace of God has been shown even, but it says the grace of God has appeared. So this sounds like we're referring to something personal, Not uh, to some sign in the sky necessarily, but actually to something personal. And so, um, uh, though there's some question about how to take this verse in some ways, it is pretty uniform that people say, this is referring to Christ. And this is referring to Christ's first coming. 
We're not talking about God's grace as an attribute per se. We're talking about God's grace in the person of Christ. And so hence singing a Christmas song here just a moment ago. We're talking about Christ coming, his appearing, God sending him. And this is his grace to us, and it's through the person of Christ. And so God sent his son to bring salvation, yes, and he is our salvation. He saves us from God's wrath, and he has restored us to God. Now, in terms of an attribute, right, this is all of grace. Even when Adam and Eve fell at the very beginning, instead of God coming in wrath, he came immediately in grace, asking questions, where are you, and so forth. And then he enters into a covenant with them. And he indicates right from the beginning that he would atone for their sins through a substitute. And so God himself went and killed an animal and then clothed them. Through the shedding of blood, they are clothed. Their sin is covered. And then he promised that one of their children would come and make it all right again. And so right from the beginning, we see that it's all of grace. But again, Paul is emphasizing that grace has now come in the person of Christ. Now, surely from the beginning, we see death and misery and sin. But God promised that someday this descendant of the woman would come, who would obey God's law in every way and who would die for our sins, who would rise again to ensure eternal life. And all these ideas are found in some way or another in the Old Covenant and, of course, manifested in Christ's coming. And so, uh, as we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 15, these things are according to the Scriptures. Christ's coming fulfills the promises of the Old Covenant. And so, again, God is gracious, But the point here is that God's grace is Jesus, and that has brought salvation. All right, now, it says here that this grace, Christ, has come to save all men. What does that mean? Well, Paul has used similar language to this as we have seen in in other places, like in uh, 1 Timothy, for example. Um, But Paul is not talking about universal salvation to every believer. If that were the case, then why does the scripture speak of sheep and goats? Why does it talk about people going to hell? That would make no sense if Jesus came to actually save every last individual. Likewise, this does not mean that God made salvation possible for all men. That is what we hear in most churches today. God, through Christ, has made salvation possible. It's up to us to decide whether or not we want to believe in Jesus. But how can we do that if we're dead in our sins? How can we do that if no one seeks God, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 and Romans 3? And so for God's grace coming to all men, it can't mean either of these two things. Okay. And so Paul here is actually speaking similarly to John. Right? For God so loved the world. Well, again, that doesn't mean every individual. It doesn't mean that salvation is possible. But it means that God's salvation has come to God's people throughout the world, not just to Israel. Jesus did appear to Israel. He did come to the Jews and then 
to some Gentiles. But that work of Christ, fulfilling the promises of the Old Covenant, now is spread um, by people like Paul to people like those in Crete. And so the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, is for Jew and for Gentile, for Israel and for the world, for male and for female, if we go back to verses 1 to 10 here, right, for young and old, for slave and free, it's to all men in this sense. So again, we, we need to think carefully here. This isn't universal salvation. It isn't that, that God is waiting and hoping that we will choose Jesus. No, it's just now the gospel is going beyond Israel in a way that it had not prior to Christ's coming. So then, <clears throat> the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, his obedience, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, the appearances after the resurrection, as we spoke of last week, and the ascension and so forth, right? All these things reveal God's grace to all classes, all ethnicities, all ages, all genders, and yes, there's still only two. Um, and so now, <clears throat> Christ has done this, and this message then continues through the apostles like Paul, through the prophets, through missionaries, pastors, elders, and all of us as believers as we witness to God's grace in Christ. So here is the essence of verse 11. But there is another point for us to see here. And this is one of those things um, that you're not going to see in the English. And this is why I've said it's helpful for us all to know at least some Greek and Hebrew. Um, Paul is giving us a polemic in this verse. You know, when we read this in our Western Christian society that we've been for a few centuries now, and we sit here in our pews and so forth, and like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, I, I know this, I understand this, this old news kind of thing. But Paul is speaking directly to the Cretan culture and the culture of the first century. Now, here's how he's doing it. In the Cretan culture, as well as the Greeks and the Romans, they spoke of the gods appearing or the emperor appearing, or some mythical hero appearing. In fact, the words for grace, God, salvation, and appearing are all used, or were all used in the first century by a variety of different peoples and philosophies. So let me give you a few Greek words. If you were living in the first century and you heard these words, okay, if you heard the word charis or theos, if you heard the word soteria or epiphino, you would think of the Greek gods, or you'd think of Caesar. Okay? These kinds of things would come to mind. But Paul is saying, all those things are wrong. Okay, True grace, not grace from the emperor, but true grace, has come from the true God, not Zeus or anyone else. And it has truly appeared in Christ, who brings true and eternal salvation to all who believe. The words he gives here are very intentionally, if you will, an attack against the false teaching of the first century. Again, we tend to read it and think, yeah, well, you know, this is... 
Christmas uh, message or even an Easter message, and it is. But Paul is saying, but this is true and all the other things are wrong. And so as we sit here and we listen to this theology, we must do it and understand it in the context of polemics. Our culture says something very different than what it says here in verse 11. Okay. And so it's not about the gods, it's not about the emperor, it's not about the president or the congress, it's not about some other way of salvation. Okay. It's about Christ. Okay. <clears throat> now, let me apply this in some ways to our culture today. And we can do it in a variety of ways and we could say a lot for weeks on end even. But simply, salvation that we are taught about today in our culture is found in rejecting old binaries, is the language that they will use. And the one that we're hearing over and over again right now is the rejection of the binary of male and female. Okay? It seems like every time we turn on the television, in every day's news story, we see something about the trans movement, something about the gay agenda. It's just all over the place. We were watching Toy Story last night, and a Disney commercial came on. It was about two guys being together. It's like, oh, come on. Enough already. But we are being told that the way to be saved from this old traditionalism, this old way of hatred in the Christian worldview... To be saved from that is to deconstruct and to deny male and female as God made. Another way we see this is this breaking down of right and wrong. It's not right according to God's law. It's right according to the way that we think it should be right. And what we see over and over again is this oppressor and oppressed language. It is right for the oppressed to fight back against the oppressor. It's wrong for the oppressor to harm the oppressed, which, okay, there's some truth in that. Or they'll say the, the old ways of the founding fathers and the Constitution and the Democratic Republic, that's wrong now because they were all racist. And what is right now is for us to accept socialism in some form or fashion. We must secure justice for the disadvantaged by taking money and power and liberty from the privileged. And the privileged, they must repent repeatedly. And you can never find salvation if you're privileged. And of course, the oppressed don't even need salvation. And of course, we hear repeatedly that Jesus is on the side of the underprivileged. He didn't die for our sins, but he did point us to a better way. Now, these are just a few thoughts, okay? And, you know, when I say these things, some of you think, oh, you're just being political. No, I'm doing what Paul is doing. I'm taking biblical ideas and applying it in our culture and saying, those things are wrong, this is what is right. Salvation is salvation from our sins through Jesus Christ. And we are saved from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. That is salvation. Not these other things that we hear about in our culture. 
Now, I'm talking about the culture, but I could say some of the same things about the church and the wrong teaching found within the church. And so I'll say some of that here in a moment. So as we read verse 11, we read it, and it sounds pretty straightforward, but Paul is very deliberate in what he is attacking here. And it's, uh, it's the culture of the first century. <clears throat> All right, well, let's continue here. And I want you to take out the... Uh, outline here now a moment, and I want us to look, especially on the right side, at this uh, sentence diagram. And it, it's really more of a sentence structure, it's not fully a diagram. But uh, it's, it's one of those places that um, doing something like this is going to be helpful for us. You might remember I did this at the very beginning of chapter one, because those opening few verses were, were so jam-packed. Uh, it's the same kind of thing here. In fact, uh, many commentators will say that this section is the pinnacle of the book. That if we're going to understand anything in this letter to, t- to Titus, we need to understand verses 11 to 14. So it's not surprising then that Paul's words are so um, deliberately chosen and arranged. So let me work us through this here briefly. Um, and so notice how it begins with four, obviously. And then it says, the grace of God, salvation to all men, right? So that's, that's the, the structure. And then you have the main verb, has appeared. It has appeared. And, and then the grace of God not only has appeared, but the grace of God is training us or teaching us. So those two things go together. The grace of God is doing two things. We've talked about the first. We'll talk about the second in a moment. And then you notice the purpose clause, in order that. The grace of God is training us. Why? For the purpose that we might live in the present age, and then the three words here, sober-mindedly, righteously, in a godly manner. But then there's another part of that, after we've denied ungodliness and worldly lusts. And then, at the same time we do that, while we're waiting for, or looking for, the return of Christ, so the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those two things go together, hope and appearing, okay, the second appearing of Christ. And then Christ is developed, who gave himself for us. Okay, why did he give us himself for us? Well, note two things. In order that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and he might cleanse us or purify for himself a special people. And then special people has one final part to it, one who is zealous of good works. So we'll work our way through this here uh, for the rest of our time today and and next week. But this is how it's fitting together. So again, I, I wanted to put it in front of you for you to look at. Take this home, read over these verses, and see how this is arranged. This is very deliberate on Paul's part. So with that in mind... Hey, we've talked about the grace of God, who is Jesus, who has appeared, right, and he is salvation to all of God's people. Well, he also not only appeared to save us, but to teach us, to train us. So verse 12, the New King James says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Okay, so Jesus came to teach us. Not just to save us, but to teach us. So he has taught us many things. And so Paul here is emphasizing uh, one of these things in particular. 
Okay, so Jesus, then, is our tutor. The word here for teaching um, is not the normal word for teaching. It's, it's actually the word for training, for disciplining, for uh, educating. And so uh, think of Jesus as a tutor here. That's the idea of this word. He is teaching us, training us, guiding us, correcting us, disciplining us, like a teacher would do or a parent would do. We are God's children, and we need instruction. Instruction. So right, Jesus has been hired, as it were, in the school of Scott Fleming or the school of any one of us, right, to, to teach us how to be like himself. Now, notice that Paul includes himself here. He says, teaching or training us. So it's not like Paul has all the answers, right? We talked about this even this morning. Paul is humble. He, he needs more teaching, more instruction in this way. In fact, of course, all believers need to go to school to learn about grace. Yes, to learn about Christ's first coming, his life, death, and resurrection, how he accomplished salvation for his people. Yes, that is true. But we also need to be schooled in godliness. And so God's grace through Christ saves us from his wrath. And God's grace through Christ enables us to live lives worthy of the gospel in the present age. And so here's how it's all put together. <clears throat> all right, now when he says in the present age, right, that includes this age of unbelievers. Paul's engaging with the unbelieving world, as I've just talked about in verse 11, and we'll see even more here in this verse. And so we need to live in the present age, too. We can't just hide out in our little Christian communes and ignore the world. We must engage with the world. Even if that world isn't quite as close to us as it might be to others, it is impacting us if we're actually aware and so the saying is, we should not be so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. Okay? We should not be so secluded in our Christianity that we don't see how the truth of God applies in our culture and how our culture is impacting us. And so God's grace through Christ is impacting how we live today. Verses 1 to 10 are some of those practical ways that we should be living. This is part of our education. But it's like Paul is saying, okay, in case you're not an older man or an older woman, in case you're not a younger woman who is married with children, in case you're not a younger man or in case you're not a slave, let me now say it in the most general possible way. So this applies to all of us. All of us need to live in this way as God's people. So on the one hand, we deny sin. We deny ungodliness. We put off worldly lusts. But on the other hand, we live soberly, righteously, and godly. You know, when we talked about sanctification, sanctification sometimes uh, can be somewhat complex. I mean, even uh, this morning, as we saw in Sunday school, apologetics can be somewhat of a complex issue. And that's understandable, and there's a place for all of that. But on the other hand, sanctification is pretty straightforward. Sanctification is very simply saying yes to good things and no to bad things. 
It's really that simple. We deny sin and we live for what pleases God. Now, you might remember back in chapter 1 with the elder, it says the elder is a lover of good things. And I, and I said there, well, we need to define good according to God's word, not according to what our culture says. And since Paul is already engaged with the culture in verse 11, and he's doing again it, it again here, we need to do the same thing. The world tells us what is good. But it isn't necessarily what God says is good. Okay? And so we must live in this godly, righteous way according to Scripture. <clears throat> So let's turn here to Romans then, and since we're studying, uh, have started our study of Romans here, let me um, just summarize some of what Paul goes on to say. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, Paul is helping us to understand what ungodliness is, what worldly lusts are, and then to contrast that with what is godly and righteous. So in this first section here of Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, he is saying that those who worship the creature and not the creator, that's ungodliness. Idolatry is sinful in God's sight. I was listening to the pirate game the other day, and I think in the course of 10 minutes, the commentator said about the baseball gods and about the universe causing the ball to fall a certain way. I'm like, what? That's idolatry. That's worshiping the creature and not the creator. It's all around us. We're not to, we're not to do that. Okay, we're to deny those things. In terms of worldly lust, obviously Paul goes on to say here about sexual promiscuity in verses 24 and 25, and then sexual perversions in verses 26 and 27. And then he speaks generally about hating people, verses 28 to 32. And so the wickedness, covetousness, murder, strife, all these things, right? We're to deny those things as God's people. Okay? And so say no to sinful behavior like these. Say no to idolatry. Say yes to what is good and right. According to God's standard. Well, you think, okay, well, <clears throat> I'm not going around murdering people. I, I'm not sexually perverted or something like that. Okay, fine. Well, then in chapter 2, Romans 2, verses 1 to 16 in particular, Paul now addresses the moral person. Whether they're a Jew or a Christian or not, you have the so-called virtuous pagan, too. And so even among unbelievers, some will say, well, we shouldn't act like this. We shouldn't do what we see in chapter 1. We should do differently. But even here, Paul is saying that if you have morality without the gospel, if you try to be a good person without Christ, that's ungodliness too. And so if we think that we are moral, Paul says, no, you're not. Because you don't even live according to your own standards. That too is a form of ungodliness. That too is actually a form of worldly lusting. Lusting after my own way of getting to heaven. And then in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul says here, even the Jews are pursuing ungodliness. How? 
Well, in part because they're trying to be a moral people, right? They're, they're trying to seek their own righteousness. And he says more about that in uh, the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, but here he also says that they're not practicing what they're preaching. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They're focusing on outward religion, and it's not touching the heart. It's not touching the whole of the person. And so even the Jews have missed the point. They, too, are pursuing ungodliness. We should deny that. We should not go down the path of ungodliness, even for those who go to church, who, who do the right things outwardly, but aren't really affected in the heart. We are to deny those things. Instead, we should live for righteousness in a genuine, true, and godly way. Now, in chapter 3 here in Romans, obviously, verses 1 to 20, Paul puts it all together and says, there is not one person who is godly and righteous apart from Jesus Christ. And so the world is going to teach us, the church even, is going to teach us, at least in some churches and in some ways, that we can have heaven without Christ. And Paul's saying, no, we need to deny all that. All right, verse 11, true salvation is in the true God through true grace and the appearance of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that anyone is saved and that is the only way for anyone to truly become moral. Well, in our culture then today, we obviously see Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, don't we? It's all around us. The ungodliness and the lusting, the perverting, the hatred, and so forth. But we are also filled with all kinds of moralizers without the gospel. We have the critical theorists. We have the progressives. We have the environmentalists. We have the politicians who demand that we wear masks and get our shots. That's the moral thing to do. You know, in all these different ways, right? We are taught morality without Christ. But even in our churches, we are too often filled with moralism and outward religion. Whether it's churches who do all kinds of activities to replace the gospel, or the cultural moralism that is taken over in the church, and now it's really a social gospel. And so, as I've said on other occasions, even in our churches in America, even in some Reformed churches, we are being taught to repent of our whiteness or to oppose Trump, or it's the loving thing to do to wear masks and have church virtually, or, you know, we must do whatever our leaders say because Paul says to obey them, right? Or Jesus, I heard this just this week, Jesus supports drag queens. You know, again, this is in our churches. This is the Romans 2, verses 17 and following ideas, right? Even in the, among the Jews, among those who are supposed to be our Christian, uh, true believers, right? And so, again, I, I could give example after example, if, and the point is pretty straightforward. True believers deny all of these things. Okay? But how can we deny them if we don't understand them? How can we deny what is wrong 
if what is packaged for us as good and right has deceived us. And so we need to think critically here. We need to think carefully about these things. All right, well, let's come back to Titus 2. And notice now the opposite. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And then the opposite is we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And so three words here. And uh, um, the first one is soberly, or the word we've seen over and over again, sober-mindedly. This is the same word now for the sixth time here in Titus. Starting in chapter 1, verse 8, four times in verses 1 to 10, and now here again. Okay, So as I've said, this is the idea of thinking clearly. It's not just self-control and controlling our passions, which, uh, okay, that's part of it. But the focus is on the mind, thinking rightly. Okay, And so let's think clearly about the gospel. Paul told us to do that in verse 11. Let's think clear, uh, critically about scripture. Is it really God's word to us? Okay. Let's think critically about the culture. I've just tried to do some of that. Let's think critically about the media and how virtually everything out of their mouth is propaganda in some way or another. Let's think critically about the government. What is true and good government? Is it bigger and better? Okay. Let's think critically about entertainment. I just gave you an example from a pirate's game. Hey, think critically about what you're hearing. Okay. What does it mean to be a Christian? And how does it apply in every area of life? Okay. Let's be sober-minded as we are uh, living for the Lord. Now, secondly, he gives the word righteously. All right, now this is a word that we hear all the time in our culture right now. Hey, usually in the context of the word justice or social justice, hey, righteous justice, the same word here. But social justice, as we're hearing about, is not the same thing as biblical justice. So just give you a few examples here. In the last few weeks, right, Trump was uh, indicted for uh, various things, you know, campaign funds and so on and so forth. Okay, as I said before, look, if he did something wrong, fine. But if you're going to have true biblical justice, then you're also going to do the same kinds of things to people on the other side. So why are the Bidens getting off? Why are the Clintons getting off? And if Trump did wrong, then what about them? True biblical justice is justice, righteousness applies to everyone, not just to your friends or your enemies. I saw an article this week that talked about a man in Harlem who was charged with shooting three police officers who was released on bail and went out and shot another person. And in this case, the woke DA, the one who's, I believe it was the same one who's charging Trump, uh, but even if it wasn't, it, it was a young black man. He's part of the oppressed. So, you know, we can't hold him in jail, no matter what he's done. Because in the end, he's innocent. He, he can't sin because he's oppressed. That's social justice, guys. Right? As Naylene mentioned earlier, this just happened in Oil City. In the last few days, there was a man who was out of jail for killing 
and raping, and he did it again. Maybe you heard this week or in the last week or so, maybe it was last Sunday, a pastor was arrested in Canada for opposing drag and the gender-fluid propaganda. We are being told this is what righteousness is. This is social justice, but not according to the scriptures. We've heard in the last few weeks that it's okay for a trans girl to shoot six Christians because Christians preach hate. So let's deny those things and let's uphold true righteousness. God's law, what is good and right and righteous according to what God says. Let's live this way. Let's do what is right in God's eyes. Let's do so as individuals. Let's do so as families. Let's do so as a church. And let's do so in society. As I've said on other occasions, I am not a theonomist. But I do believe that the general equity of the civil laws of the Old Testament apply to any and every culture. And so God's righteous laws, the principles apply in any setting. And so if we're going to have biblical justice, we need to live it out. Don't fall into the two-kingdom separation that you hear at Westminster Seminary in California. Don't buy this common evangelical message that, hey, we, we're going to take over with the religious right, as it was known. Okay. Okay. What is true justice? Live that way, okay. according to God's law. All right, then lastly here we have the word godly. Uh, the point here is pretty straightforward. Act like God. Be like Christ. And again, back to what I said earlier, we're not talking about outward religion here. We're not talking about going through the motions. We're not talking about practices like rubbing rosary beads or something. We're talking about genuine piety, loving God in all that we do. And so Paul puts this at the end, seemingly just to encompass it all. Let's be godly in our thinking sober-minded, let's be godly in how we relate to others in terms of righteousness and justice, and let's be godly, ultimately, in our relationship with God. All right, now, just like in verse 11, these three terms here in verse 12 were terms that were used in the first century. And so, if you heard the first word, sophronos, or the second word, dikaios in related words, or the third word, eusebos. If you heard those words, you'd automatically think certain things. The first word is one of the Greek virtues. Sober-minded is what is typically called temperance. And so when you think of the, the ancient virtues and such, that's what we've been talking about here in the last chapter plus. Okay? But temperance is far more than just behavior. Again, the emphasis is on the mind, which then affects the behavior. And the fact that Paul mentions this word six times in this letter is likely because there were people in Crete who were talking about temperance, but not necessarily from a Christian perspective. 
And so he's saying, okay, let's take this idea of temperance and let's Christianize it. Let's give it a biblical foundation, not just some moralistic Greek or Roman idea. And then the word for righteous is another one of the, uh, the ancient virtues, right? Temperance, now justice. This is the word that would be used. And again, Paul is saying, right? Think biblically about these things. We, we're not defining justice according to the world, right? The Greek version of justice it wasn't necessarily the same as the Roman view of justice, at least prior to the Caesars. And that isn't necessarily what we see in the scriptures. So uh, let's think biblically and act in that way. And then the word for godliness, this word was used in the context of the emperors and the gods. And so we are to be godly like Caesar or godly like Zeus or you know, any of the other gods, right? But again, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. This is a polemic. Let's do this in the way that God is telling us. And so let us do the same thing, right? Temperance is not about the temperance movement. Justice isn't about the social justice movement. Godliness is not about worshiping Biden or any other politician, right? We need to think biblically and live that way. And so Paul has taken these cultural terms and he has given them Christian meaning. And so Christ here is teaching us, yes, about salvation, but how to say yes and how to say no. You know, when we have a baptism, isn't this part of what we are doing? When someone is baptized, we are publicly saying, I am saying no to sin and I'm saying yes to what is good and right. But then this is something that we should be doing on a daily basis as Christians. Let's denounce impiety in our thinking and our behavior and let us do rightly as individuals, as we relate to one another, and ultimately in our relationship with God. Okay. Now, do you see how Paul has taken verses 1 to 10, and given us a foundation. Christianity isn't just about doing certain things and not doing other things. When we truly understand grace, when we've truly found salvation in Christ, then we will strive to be holy in all things. And so let's be holy on our own, in private. But let's also live among the ungodly and say, this is right and that is wrong. Let us be different. Let us renounce our old man. But let's also renounce the world. Let's do it privately. Let's do it publicly. Let's be virtuous as God sees it. And so grace demands good works. And grace also enables good works. So a few thoughts here tonight. And uh, we'll look at the next part, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you that it is not, um, if you will, a private book, but it, you are the God who rules over everything, everyone, every culture, every idea. And as Dale has been talking about in Sunday school, let us 
Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let us be able to give a defense, to, to provide a polemic against the things that are wrong, that we can uphold what is true. And may we then, in our everyday living, as we go to work, as we go to school, as when we're at home, relating within those four walls, or we're out in public at Walmart or County Market or wherever we are, Lord, help us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness as you see it. We are thankful, Lord, that you have given us this ability through Jesus Christ and that you have given us your spirit to enable us, to strengthen us, to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. Give us discernment that we might know how to do this. Give us strength and boldness that we would do it even if people think we're weird or maybe even are hostile toward us. And may we do all of this, as we saw uh, those three occasions, especially in verses 1 to 10, that, that your word and your name would not be blasphemed, but instead that um, people will see and be put to shame, that they would know what is true because of how we're living. And so, Lord, we ask for your help and uh, your strength to, to, to live in this way, according to the gospel, according to your word. And we pray all this then in Jesus' name. Amen.